0: There is a, uh, a common proverb for the goal, the aim of preaching uh, that I think is fitting for what we'll be talking about this morning. I'll tell you what it is in a minute. First, first uh, the, the best I can tell, the, this quote, it's been used a lot, but it originated at the turn of the 20th century with a fictional Irishman who was uh, complaining about the newspaper overreaching and how it steps into roles it wasn't made for. So I've been practicing my Irish accent for this, okay? So the newspaper does everything for us. It runs the police force and the banks, commands the militia, controls the legislature, baptizes the young, marries the foolish, comforts the afflicted, afflicts the comfortable, buries the dead and roasts them afterward. Now, if you notice in that quote, his sarcastic critique of how the media tries to step into roles it wasn't made for, it starts with the government, stepping into government roles, but then he shifts into roles of the church, like marrying, burying and baptizing. Uh, But in the middle of those roles of the church, he rightly points out that that phrase, if you caught it, comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. In a memorable and insightful way, he has captured one of the most remarkable ministries of our Lord. One of the most striking and defining features of the personality of our Savior, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. And that describes very well how Jesus lived and how he taught, comforting those who were afflicted, offering rest to the weary and heavy laden. But he also afflicted the comfortable, saying, woe to the self-satisfied religionists who neglect the weightier, more important matters of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And when you read through the Gospels, this is the thing that strikes you first about our Lord. You notice quickly and continually his tenderness paired with his severity, both incredibly intense, so intense that they they led to the shock and awe of those around him, even more so than his miracles did. He was not mild and bland. His invitations were stunning and his rebukes startling. Startling. It seemed he was always overdoing it in one side or the other, which of course led to extreme responses to him. The afflicted loved him so much for his gracious comfort that they wiped his feet with their tears. And the comfortable hated him so much for his afflicting admonition that they killed him. He comforted the afflicted and afflicted the comfortable because he wanted to wake us up. But he knew that depending on where our sin had taken us and how the devil had tempted us, we would need to be woken up differently. But of course, even in his severity, that was for the aim towards inclusion. I mean, after a whole chapter pronouncing woe to the self-righteous leaders in Jerusalem, he ends that chapter by lamenting over that city, saying he wants to wrap his arms around them like a mother hen wraps her wings around her little chicks. But they weren't willing this is our Lord Jesus. When Jesus says his sheep know his voice, I think this is at least in part what he means. We know how he talks. When we become complacent, he shakes us. And when we are shaking in fear or in shame, he calls us to himself and delights to bring us peace. And through his spirit, his apostles and the word of God do this very same thing. And few passages emphasize both sides of this coin as powerfully as the one we're reading this morning in Romans 8. So if you turn to Romans 8, it will be in verses 12 through 17. I'm going to read that text now. It says this, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. So here's where we're going this morning. We have a point, uh, three points each anchored to a person of the Godhead in this text, uh, each with a call and a promise. So as Christians, we kill sin by the Spirit. We cry out to the Father and we suffer with Christ. And as we kill sin by the Spirit, we are promised life. And as we cry out to the Father, we are promised assurance. And as we suffer with Christ, we are promised glory. As you can already tell, this is a profound text with depth and intensity to it. Let's jump right into the first point, the first call and promise in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is strong language, put to death. You are to kill your sin mercilessly murder it. When I first went to college, I was really into Christian hip-hop And a rapper named Tadashi came out with a song about this called Make War. And he put the battle with sin to a beat and it was awesome. Uh, But the best part was that the song began with an excerpt from a John Piper sermon from which the title of the song came. And the music fades in and gradually grows and you hear the voice of a riled up John Piper say, I hear so many Christians murmuring about their imperfections and their failures and their addictions and their shortcomings. And I see so little war murmur, murmur, murmur. Why am I this way? Make war. And then the bass drops and Tadashi starts going at it with lines like this. It's either fight or lose your life. And I can't take this passively. So what you think I'm about to do? I'm about to do what I can do. Trust the one who got me through and fight like it was after school. This is an, it's an intense song. It makes you want to fight, Uh, especially when another rapper named Flame, who's featured on the track. He comes in with, he says this, we got to snap out of it. We ain't in no straitjackets. When Jesus died in our lives, something strange happened. He gave us power. Yeah, I know we're sinners, but since he rose, he's renewing the image of God in us. Now we can start making war. Now we can start saying no to the fleshly impulses that Jesus Christ was paying for. Listen to that song today if you want to to fight the battle of faith because it makes you want to fight. At least go listen to that first clip of John Piper where he calls us out for merely murmuring about our sin and he calls us to make war on it. Our king leads us in every battle. He gives us his spirit so that we will join him in fighting our own sin. We coddle our sin. We coddle our grouchiness and our judgmentalism rather than killing it. We give in to being mean-spirited in our hearts toward others because we've given up on being mean toward our own meanness. We don't hate our own hatred. We sheepishly talk around our overindulgences, overindulgence in drink or food or TV or social media or wasting our money in irresponsible spending. We coddle these sins rather than beating them down and leaving them for dead. Drew, our student pastor, shared a book with me like a year ago uh, about addiction called A Banquet in the Grave. And I haven't got around to, I keep meaning to get around to reading it, but when he gave it to me, I perused through it and one of the chapter titles caught my eye and it was, it was titled Staying Violent. And here's how that chapter starts I, when, I, when I looked at it. There is a mean streak to authentic self-control. Underneath what seems to be the calm demeanor of those who are not ruled by their desires is the heart of a warrior. Self-control is not for the timid. When we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Jesus Christ, but we also demand of ourselves a hatred for sin. Christians of old spoke of three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And indeed, they all are, but only one of those can damn us. We are only condemned because of our own sin. As much as we like getting riled up about the world, and as spiritual as fighting the devil sounds, we will be weak in those, and frail in those other battles if we do not take seriously the battle with our own flesh. Our beloved gentle and lowly Jesus spoke this way too, didn't he? He said to rip out your eyeball and chop off your hand if they lead you into sin. Nobody can outmatch Jesus in vivid arresting language, can they? He wants to get your attention to show you how serious this battle is exactly, and exactly who you are fighting because you're not, spo- not supposed to chop off other people's hands or rip out other people's eyeballs. No, this is your flesh you fight with this special kind of intensity. And if you aren't fighting that fight, then if you turn to talk about other people's misdeeds, your view is probably obstructed by a giant plank in your eye. Now, when it comes to sin, I do fear that there's a tendency to move toward the outer rings rather than aim at the bullseye. We think of lust or anger or drunkenness or greed, but these are mere ripples from the stone. What is the big sin in the Bible? Which one goeth before a fall? As C.S. Lewis said, "The the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And he's right. Because this is the teaching of scripture. So as we discuss putting sin to death, we recognize we must kill all sin, yes. But in our battle, let us aim to strike down the general. We're in this to win it, right? So you gossip, because it makes you feel like you have special information, which puffs you up. You envy because you want to be thought more or better than that other person. You get angry because in your pride, you feel entitled to something that person wasn't giving you. You resent others and harbor bitterness because you're not being as respected or recognized as you feel you deserve. You judge other people because you think you're better than them simply because they have a different vice than you. You're a glutton or a drunkard or a fornicator because in your pride, you think it's your choice what you do with your body and you deserve to indulge all of your appetites. It's your right. You must kill your pride. It's not only the biggest, but also the sneakiest because it's the one that can shut your ears to a young preacher because you think this whipper snapper has nothing he can teach me. It's the ones that can shut your ears to an old preacher because you think this geezer has nothing relevant to say to me. It's the ones that can shut your ears to any wise counsel because you know better than them. It can close you off to religion because you're more enlightened than that. It can trap you in its grasp. It can even trick you into allying yourself with it to battle the other sins. It tells you you're strong enough to stop on your own. You can change yourself. You're stronger than those weaklings who struggle, wiser than those fools who flounder. You're more respectable. You're cooler. You're more godly. You got this. And you can actually make changes with the power of pride. The Pharisees did it. Many others have done it. But that kind of change only comes by feeding a beast and making it stronger making enemies, making friends with an enemy. Pride will happily trample over its lesser children in order to set up its throne in your life. But pride will not be your friend. It will make you utterly discontent and insecure. It will eat you alive. It's a beastly enemy that Jesus wants to help you kill. And that is exactly why this text is such good news because it offers you life, abundant life, unshackled life, a path toward actual victory that doesn't depend on pride and can even overcome pride itself. According to this text, the way you truly live is to kill sin by the spirit. In verse 13, it says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In light of what we said, this means being completely committed to the leading of the Spirit, giving yourself over. One place that you can be certain He will lead you is into the battle with your own sin. I've read uh, quite a few accounts of various awakenings and revivals in history, like the Great Awakening in colonial America. And these are times and places where the Spirit blows through in a special way like a mighty wind. And one thing that always accompanies the genuine work of the Holy Spirit is a radical conviction of sin. One example uh, I, I really like uh, from a little over 120 years ago it was a church uh, started in Korea by a Presbyterian missionary. Here's an excerpt from his account of the night a revival, this revival began. Every sin a human being can commit was publicly confessed that night. Pale and trembling with emotion, in agony of mind and body, guilty souls standing in the white light of judgment saw themselves as God saw them. Their sins rose up in all their vileness till shame and grief and self-loathing took complete possession. Pride was driven out. The face of men, forgotten. Looking up to heaven, to Jesus whom they had betrayed, they smote themselves and cried out with bitter wailing, Lord, Lord, cast us not away forever. Everything else was forgotten. Nothing else mattered. The scorn of men, the penalty of the law, even death itself seemed of small consequence if only God forgave We may have our theories of the desirability or undesirability of public confession. I had mine, but I know now that when the spirit of God falls upon guilty souls, there will be confession and no power on earth can stop it. He saw people unhindered from social stigma begin to confess because they saw themselves as God sees them. Later in this account, if you continue reading this book, uh, you you see how these people began to make amends throughout the community with those that they had wronged. Not out of some kind of penance, but out of love for the God that they had wronged and out of hatred for who they'd been and out of a hope of becoming something more and something new. And the paradox uh, about uh, revivals. And when you read about these kinds of accounts is the other thing you always read about is great joy. Because when you take sin seriously, you take forgiveness seriously. Like those Korean believers for whom even death seemed of small consequence, if God would forgive, there comes great joy to such a soul. Why? Because in Christ, God does indeed forgive. Forgive. And he not only forgives, but he renews. His spirit gives you hope of a renewed life as you lean on him and invite his life to be your life. And as you live this way, you let go of all the junk you've been holding on to, all the self-protection and the the careful guarding of your comfort and of your image. And you begin to truly live, to live abundantly. Abundantly. But because this battle is more than you can handle on your own, it will often feel that way. It will feel like it's more than you can handle. And that's when the devil wants to insert his lies and tell you, you're no child of God. But Paul wants to assure you that you are. So he gives you this evidence in verses 14 through 15. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There's this uh, science podcast I like to listen to. And for a couple of weeks, they were, doing the, they were answering some of the most interesting listener questions. And there was this unique one that I really loved. A guy asked, what is the oldest recognizable word that we use today like, in, in our language? Like if I could get in a time machine and go back really far in the past to where they wouldn't recognize anything I said except one word. And we both say that word the same and use it the same. What would that word be? And so they talked to a bunch of linguists who kept pointing them to a language called Proto-Indo-European, uh, which is like the great-great-grandfather of many languages today, even Latin and Greek. And, uh, but the linguists kept having trouble finding a word that was exactly s- said the same. Um, but one linguist in a, a found in his Proto-Indo-European dictionary a subset of the words for mother and father and this entry, mama and papa. So if we got in our time machines and went way back in the black sea a couple thousand years before Christ and said, mama or papa, they would have understood us. And what's even cooler is that these these, or something very similar occur in virtually every language. The first words we learn to say as babies are also the most ancient words and the most universal words. When they came back and they told this answer to the guy who asked the question, he said, What's so cool is that I was thinking about basics like trees and stuff, but actually, that wasn't basic enough. The most basic thing is the first relationship that you can understand and the first sound that you can make about it. That's as basic as it gets. It is the most foundational and universal formation of our mouths and our minds, but it's also the most foundational and universal cry of our souls. When we are physical infants and babies learning to speak, we unselfconsciously cry out for our papa, our dada. Something in our design, our architecture, our being, desires the ones who, who care for us and provide for us and help us through our weakness into growth. We viscerally and instinctually know to acknowledge our need soon after we are born. And when we are spiritually born again, we do the same. The word Paul uses is Abba. It's one of those words like Papa or Dada. And it's a little different because it's an Aramaic word, which is one of those languages that doesn't come from Proto-Indo-European. But it's significant because Aramaic is the primary language Jesus spoke. And in the Gospels, we see Jesus address the Father, calling him Abba. In Christ, we share his sonship, his intimate relationship with the Father. And Paul is saying, this is how you know you are a child of God because you have the spirit of God and you know you have the spirit of God, the spirit whom he calls the spirit of adoption as sons. You know you have that spirit because you recognize your need for your father God. And you cry out to him as your Abba, your your Papa. Like when Jesus said, you must become like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what is more of a defining mark of a child than a humble dependence upon their parents, especially when they are in need? And I think that's why he says cry out because there's a distress and desperation in that phrase. You recognize it's too much for you, this battle that the spirit has led you into, but you know who you need. You know who you can turn to. You instinctually cry out to your father, confident that he is your father, that he cares for you as such because you have been adopted as a son. Because through your faith in Jesus, you are united to the one and only son of God. And through this experience, you have assurance. Paul is so eager to give assurance to the genuine child of God. He wants you to know with rock solid confidence that you are a child of God so that you are ready to die knowing that he will catch you right afterward. He wants you to know that your Father is with you and that you are His so that you can have peace that surpasses understanding. And you know this not because you're perfect and because you have everything under control. No, you gain assurance because you know you aren't perfect and you don't have everything under control, but you know that you need your Father. You feel it. You acknowledge it. You cry out in affection and in desperation and in dependence and in love to him. He is your Abba. That's the test. And notice he contrasts this spirit of adoption as sons with a spirit of slavery, which makes you fall into fear. That's the alternative enslaved, ruled, dominated by your desires and impulses by constantly trying to live up to whoever's approval you're seeking. Always afraid you're not living up. Always afraid you're going to be found out. Afraid of what people think of you. Always afraid you're wrecking everything or messing it up. Afraid of what will happen to you. Afraid of what you'll lose or miss out on. Afraid with no place to turn for lasting peace. But you have received a different spirit. A spirit incomparably great one that bears witness, this text says, meaning testifies to the truth. He bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God because he gives you the heart of a child of God. And that heart is marked by crying out to him as your Abba, your father. This is the test that offers assurance, not your perfection, your heart cry to your father. And because of Jesus, you can be assured of his welcome, of his affection, of his tender care, and that he will train you up and lead you as a good father does. And this is why Paul starts off this whole section with that phrase, we are debtors. We are debtors, not because we have to pay something back, but but in the sense that we owe him everything. Everything. Like the wise person who receives an award and in their acceptance speech, they say, I owe everything to my parents. We owe all to our father. We owe him our lives. We owe nothing to the flesh. Do not feel guilty as you kill it. It has given us nothing but death and slavery and fear. But we owe God everything. Because without him, we would have worse than nothing. We owe all to our father who loved us so much that he sent his one and only son so that we who believe in him will not die, but will live eternally as his sons, like the one that he gave for us, united to the one that he gave for us. And this leads us to the third call and promise, because Paul says in verse 17, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we owe him everything, but he gives us everything. We are co-heirs with Christ, this says, which means that what he's inherited, we will be ours. He will share with us. And what Christ owns is what? All of it. Everything. Everything good is yours in Christ as a child of God. It is your new birth right, provided we suffer with Him. Provided means if. This unimaginable inheritance is yours if you suffer with Him. I love how unexpected the Bible is, <laughs> how different it is from the kind of Christianity people make up for themselves. Like when our Lord invited people to follow after him by saying, pick up your own lethal torture device and let's go. That's how his audience would have heard it when he said, deny yourself and take up your cross. Say no to yourself, pick up an infamous device of suffering and shame. What an invitation. But the emphasis is on and follow me. And for the one who really knows Christ, the promise of being with him makes us say yes to the cross, makes us say yes to anything to be with him. And I think most of us, the little little negative Nellies that we are, we read this verse from Paul with the emphasis on suffering. You must suffer with him. But I think Paul wrote it with the emphasis on with him. Provided we suffer with him. In other words, he's assuming suffering. And saying how we ought to do it. The reason we read it the other way is because we don't assume suffering. We're convinced we can insulate our lives from all suffering. But Paul knows the truth. He knows you will suffer. And he talks about it throughout this chapter. The kind of suffering suffering he's talking about is not just persecution, though he talks about that elsewhere. In chapter 8 of Romans, he's talking about the various pains and groanings of this fallen world, which has been subjected to corruption, including our decaying bodies. And Paul is telling you how you must face it all. With him. With your Savior who suffered for you. It's like when Jesus taught his famous parable of the sower and one of the seeds falls on rocky ground, if you remember, and it sprang up quickly, but then the sun came up and it was scorched for it had no roots. And he explains that part of the parable like this. He says, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only for a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the world, they quickly fall away. The heat of the sun comes upon us. Trouble comes, suffering comes, and there's a choice. Do you stick with Jesus? Or do you say, I'm out of here if this is what it's like being your follower? Each painful experience is a test. Will you sink your roots deeper into him or abandon the gospel and wither? If you suffer with him, who suffered for you, he will hold you fast and he will give you glory. And in fact, the groanings of this life serve to direct us to that greater hope. When Pastor Andrew and I were at a conference a few weeks back, we heard Alistair beg mention a hymn that I can't stop thinking about. It was so good. Some of you may know it. It's called, My God, I Thank Thee Who Has Made... And as you might expect, it's filled with thanksgiving to God. And it starts in a very expected way for the splendor and joy of earth. But by stanza three, it takes a turn and it says this, I thank thee too that all our joy is touched with pain, that shadows fall on brightest hours, that thorns remain, so that earth's bliss may be our guide and not our chain." So that earth's bliss may be our guide and not our chain. The joys of earth indeed are tinged with suffering, and this holy hymn writer has seen a blessing in this dark truth. He has seen how it shows how such a reality it guides us rather than binds us. Our hearts are guided to a greater hope, rather than being chained to this lesser gift as good as it may be. The hope that we are glorified with him glorified with Christ, suffering now, glory forever. And as Paul would say later in this chapter, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Imagine you're walking with Bill Gates or some other billionaire and imagine they're actually trustworthy and, sit, and they say, follow me to my mountain home where I keep all my money." I want you to have it all. Stay close. Don't get lost. It's just up this trail. And you look up the trail, and it's barely a trail. It's got jagged rocks. It's super steep, really long. And you're the most out of shape that you've been in years. Do you complain about the hike? Do you pout about your feet hurting? Do you say, if you want me to hike this trail, you can keep your billions? I don't want them. Or do you skip and sing? Do you don't even notice the blisters on your toes or your shortness of breath and you definitely don't let Bill out of your sight? Something far more incredible is true, friends. This short little mountain trail we call life, it ends at our Savior's home with all that is his and he is eager to share it with us. I've been obsessed with this song lately called Almost Home by Matt Papa. It goes like this Don't drop a single anchor, we're almost home. Through every toil and danger, we're almost home. How many pilgrim saints have before us gone? No stopping now, we're almost home. That promised land is calling. We're almost home. Not a tear shall fall then. We're almost home. Make ready now your souls for that kingdom come. No turning back. We're almost home. And then the chorus hits and it's so good, but I'll let you look it up and listen for that. I've drawn such encouragement and strength in these last weeks from that song. We're almost home, friends. Our inheritance awaits And I say this fully knowing the weight of suffering this world can hold. The glory awaiting us dwarfs the sufferings of this present age. So by the spirit of God, let us suffer with him. He will be with you. Press into him. Grip him tighter. This is the spirit's work in your life. To make you cling to Christ. When the enemies would rip you away. He says, the spirit says to you, be with him now and you'll be with him then. He sings to our hearts, my favorite line from that song. Take courage for this darkness shall break to dawn. Oh, lift your eyes. We're almost home this is how the spirit leads us. This whole passage is telling you what the leading of the spirit looks like because the apostle Paul and God and me all want you to know with confidence that you belong to Jesus. If you are his, I want you to know it with rock solid certainty so that you can live in boldness and and in freedom from fear so that your life can be a trumpet blast of hope in this world. And you know that you are led by the Spirit, not by incoherent feelings to maybe pick one door over another. No, you are led, you know, by the hallmarks of what the Spirit is always about. The Spirit leads us in all kinds of ways, but there are trademarks to his leading, hallmarks of his presence in our lives. And they are the three things we've mentioned. Starting with, he leads us to kill our sin. So the question for you then is, have you made peace with your sin? Have you become content with it? Or do you hate it and want it dead? The spirit hates sin because it's opposed to God and and he is God. And so when he's in there in your heart, he doesn't want to share you with what he hates. So if you hate your sin, take heart this morning. That is an encouraging truth. Be encouraged that you have the spirit and seek his help to put sin to death. But the spirit also leads us To cry out, Abba, Father. So do you know that cry of the heart? Are you open to that kind of humility and intimacy? Do you need him and acknowledge it? Do you want him and express that? This is how you know you're his child. You do what all children do. You call upon him in your need and you long for him. And then the third marker of the leading of the spirit is that he draws us to cling to Christ in our suffering. When you experience pain or loss or conflict or fear, do you let it lead you to the Lord or away from him? Do you seek his help and presence and peace? The spirit shines his light on on his beloved Christ if you battle your sin and cry out to the Father and cling to Christ in the pain of life, be assured of your status before him as a beloved child. And if you lack this assurance, cry out to the Father today. See the sufferings of Christ on your behalf and trust him alone as your only hope of salvation and give your life to him. Inviting him and his spirit to lead you in putting your sin to death. And you will live. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we need you and we want you and we thank you for making a way for us to be cleansed and adopted into your home through your one and only son. I pray for your children that they would be filled with confidence in their status this morning. And that by your spirit, you would continue to lead each of us to suffer with Christ and to cry out to you and to kill our own sin. And I pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.